1: for for not for the name the name what's up ladies and gentlemen boys and girls around the world I would like to welcome you back to the real talk with Zuby podcast on today's episode we are going to be talking about something we have not discussed much at all on the podcast if at all And this is Gold and Precious Metals. And who better to do that with than the CEO of Monetary Metals? And this is Keith Wiener. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Zuby. Thanks for having me.
1: No doubt, man. Happy to have you on. So before we jump right in, please tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do.
0: So most gold companies are about selling gold. And then they sell that with a promise that the price of gold is going to go up. So then you can sell it and make a profit. We are a little different we are about paying interest on the gold in gold so something closer to uh, we're not a bank we're not regulated as a bank but something more like that concept where you bring your gold you deposit it and earn interest on it in gold mm. so we believe in the gold standard as a free market and money in which everybody is empowered and enfranchised to make their own decisions if you don't like the terms you can take your gold home if you like the interest rate and trust the system, then you can deposit it or an interest, which is the the key feature that was lost in the, in the dollar system, uh, you know, a long time ago.
1: Mm. What was it that got you interested in gold to begin with?
0: So, um, I, I built up and sold, built up a software company called Diamondware, which I sold to a company called Nortel networks in August 19 of 2008, so right before, uh, the crisis erupted right before Nortel began to collapse, uh, we were the last acquisition they ever did. Mm. So as the fall of 2008 unfolded, um, at first I was kind of bemused. It was like, it seemed surreal to me. And then as things continued to progress, I became alarmed as what's going on. Started to study markets and then economics to figure out really how to protect myself. I had worked for 14 years, built this business, sold that, made some money. Didn't want to lose it all because crazy things were happening. Um, eventually came to realize that there's a problem in the monetary system that's not working for, uh, certainly for the average person, but at that point, not even for Wall Street. And that um, the solution clearly had something to do with gold uh, and then eventually formed a, a business idea for how to try to solve the problem.
1: I hear you. So a lot of people, I think, I mean, I honestly think most people don't really understand money itself or really think much about it beyond the numbers they see on a screen or the paper notes that they hold in their hands. So can you talk a little bit about money and what money is? You mentioned the gold standard. If you can talk a little bit about the history of the USA and other countries coming off the gold standards and what the implications of that have been, I think it would be really enlightening for people.
0: So, so everyone, when say money, Everyone thinks in terms of a medium of exchange. I go to the store, I want to buy a shirt. I go to the uh, you know, restaurant, I want to buy dinner. And then I hand over something, and that's a currency or a medium of exchange or something like that. And that's certainly true, and, that, and that's certainly important. But more importantly than that, I think, is uh, the idea of final payment. The idea that you've either delivered some goods or, or provided a service, and you don't care to take a flyer on the system you don't care to just let it ride and continue to grant somebody credit so today in the dollar system you know to, to have a money balance is to be a creditor is to extend credit whether if you own a dollar bill that says federal reserve note you are a creditor to the federal reserve and then you have to ask what does the federal reserve do well they lend it to the government and the banking system if you deposit that dollar bill in the bank well now you're a creditor to the bank uh, you could buy a treasury bond, now you're a creditor to Uncle Sam. And what is Uncle Sam doing it with Well, they're borrowing trillions and trillions and trillions and doling it out on all sorts of uh, things that either you think are, are wonderful or you think they're stupid. But either way, you know they're racking up a debt that you have to question if they ever could hope to repay it. And so um, the idea of final payment is that uh, we're physical creatures that live in a physical world. Final payment is a physical thing that you can take home and then you're just quits on the whole thing. You know, like you're in seven, you know, seven years old, you're playing marbles in the sandbox with the other kids. And if there's a bully or a tyrant or whatever, just, you know, people are cheating, you just have the right to take your marbles, put them in your pocket, get up and mm-hmm. walk, you know, walk away. And, you know, it has to be a physical thing. And when you look at all the commodities, whether it's oil, whether it's copper, whether it's wheat, uh, gold turns out to be the best thing for uh, for final payment. So that's what it was in the, in the United States uh, until 1933, President Roosevelt uh, did a couple of things. First, he made it illegal to possess gold. So as in go to prison, it was the same as today, if you possess a certain funny white powder, you was to throw with in prison, um, which is a pretty harsh thing to do to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the cops can kill you in the process of arresting you. Oh, well, too bad. Then they just take you to the cemetery and that's it. Um, but what this does is it disenfranchises the saver. Prior to 1933, if you didn't like the interest rate or if you didn't like the terms that uh, the banks were offering or if you didn't like the risk of the banking system, you could withdraw your gold coin and say, so, okay, I'm, I'm quit. just so like taking my marbles and leaving. After 1933, they, they disenfranchised um, the saver and now you're forced, if you hold the money balance anyway, you're forced to uh, to have the dollar. Of course, after 1933, you were forced, period. Um, after gold was removed, the last link to gold was removed by Nixon in 1971. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of years later, Congress re-legalized the possession of gold. But today, to hold gold carries a price risk. And um, if you're a really conservative saver, that price risk is not acceptable. You have to hold a, a money balance. To hold a money balance is to be a creditor. And so then the interest rate can go off the rails, and it can fall to zero and beyond, and all kinds of other really perverse things can happen. It's because we've disenfranchised the saver. If the saver had any real teeth to his preference, then that could never be, never be possible.
1: Mm-hmm. And what are what have been some of the real world implications of going off the gold standard? Not just in the USA, but also on a global level with all these different fiat currencies.
0: I'd say two, two primary things. I mean, I guess three, it enables governments to spend such stupefying amounts of money. And with that spending, they become more and more powerful because they become the hand that feeds more and more different things that so corrupt science, it corrupts education, it corrupts everything that it mm-hmm. touches because, you know, let's say you're a scientist. It's no longer whether your theory is more valid. It's whether your theory is more politically correct.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, uh, you know, whether you're teaching the idea that, uh, you know, anybody can be any gender they want to be, whether you're teaching the idea that man is destroying the planet by incinerating an inferno, whatever it is, there's one side that is eligible for unlimited government funding. And there's another side that uh, you're out in the cold. So they have enormous amounts of power, obviously, they can hire huge numbers of cops, arm the cops with, you know, tank tank like you know, vehicles and all kinds of stuff. Um, number two is that the debt in the system at, at, at all levels so this is you know private uh, business corporate banking government debt at all levels grows and grows exponentially it's an exponentially growing you know curve if you take a look at what that looks like post 1971 it's scary mm-hmm. I, I say to people many times if you're not scared you don't get it this is <laughs> terrifying um, you know 30 trillion dollars to put that in perspective assuming there's maybe a hundred million Americans that work in the, in the private sector, which is the only sector that can support it. That's something like $300,000 for every working person. So a married Mm -hmm. couple, you know, $600,000, there's no way that can be paid. And it's still accelerating. I mean, we're adding trillions a year to this. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is the interest rate, which should be stable and was the gold standard um, is destabilized and it can either shoot the moon. So after world war II, maybe 1947, approximately to 1981, we had the interest rate you know, skyrocketing to levels that the world had never before seen, which creates all kinds of destruction, as you can imagine, including gutting the American economy of, of jobs in the manufacturing sector, devastating you know, huge swathes of uh, uh, you know, cities in, in the Midwest in particular. And then after 1981, it begins falling. It's been a four decades long fall I know we're in a, in a correction right now, but that correction will come to an end. And I think with a vengeance mm-hmm. and um, the savers are just being chewed, you know, chewed up and spit out by, uh, you know, imagine if you could get 2% in the bank, even 2% isn't enough because of course the federal reserve has a mandate mm-hmm. to debase. based right on the federal reserve website. Their official policy stance is so-called price stability. Don't even get me started about George Orwell. And that price stability is defined as relentless two <laughs> percent inflation. Um, you know, Orwell would be looking at this and "Guys, that wasn't supposed to be a recipe book here. It was supposed to be a warning." Yeah. But um, uh, you know, so if you're getting two percent uh, interest on your dollars, and the and the Fed is taking away two percent of the value of those dollars every year, it's not that simple. But conceptually, mm-hmm. people sort of get that. Then um, you know, you're basically just keeping even, and you can't even get two percent anyway. You'd be lucky to get zero point two percent. So you have, you know, falling interest rates or destabilized interest rates. You have exponentially rising debt, um, and you have just the absolute rise of the Leviathan state that is powerful enough to give you everything that you could wish for, and therefore powerful enough to take away everything that you care about, both in the same, you know, one fell swoop. Yeah. So those are some of the um, some of the harms done by this by this system.
1: Uh, That's a lot. That's a lot. One question I've always had, and I'll be honest, something I've never really understood is when all of these countries and all of these governments are all in this ridiculous amount of debt, who, who or what are they all in debt to? And at what point is this debt supposed to be paid? I mean, you can't just pass this off to generations forever it can't just be deferred eternally so i've i've That's always right. been confused by this concept of like every every government being in trillions of debt to somebody and this debt number just keeps on growing and you know at what point is this supposed to be reconciled
0: well i think we've we've passed the point in which there's any supposition of any reconciliation. <laughs> um, just, just because the, the dollar amount of it has grown beyond where there's no there's no time period that you, let's say, th- pick a 30-year amortization period and say, okay, pick some interest rate. There's no way to amortize the debt anymore. Mm. The average working person cannot support $300,000 in, in debt on top of their mortgage, their car payment, their credit card, their student loan, and... Their, their apportionment of their state debt, county debt, city debt, corporate debt, business debt. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. that on top of that. What debt what ultimately is, is you're taking a real resource from somebody. So let's reduce this to sort of the Robinson Crusoe. Suppose you and I are on a boat and we crash land on some island and we don't have any radio, you know, there's no electronics of any kind. There's no way to communicate. Mm-hmm. Here we are, we're stuck on this island, but there's plenty of uh, vines to weave, uh, you know, fish nets out of, and there's plenty of coconuts, and there's some fresh water in the basin in the volcano at the top of the you know, center of the island at the top. So we can drink, we can eat, and um, you know, we have both uh, coconuts and fish. Mm-hmm. So you're the you're the fisher guy, I'm the coconut guy, and we start to accumulate some savings of both, you know, dried fish, dried in the sun, and dried coconut meat, and it keeps for a while. We start to accumulate some capital. Um, Borrowing is when you uh, you take some accumulated capital and you consume it, but it, that should be for a productive purpose. So let's say you're fishing and all you have is this really crude net that so you can weave an hour or two because you don't have the time to design and build a net that takes, let's say, a couple of weeks. You're going to starve. So You say, Keith, I want to borrow all these you know saved up dried coconuts you have, and I'll repay you in fish. But if I had a week. I could build a canoe and get farther out to where there's bigger better fish um and i can um you know make this net that's gonna you know, catch a lot more of them you know a lot faster and so if you do that so you consume all the coconuts i've saved up that's the downside but the upside is now you can produce 10 times as many fish and they are better fish besides because you can now get over the reef or whatever it is you need to go. and then i say okay now that you're richer and you have all this dried fish i want to borrow because i want to build I want to make a machete out of volcanic rock or whatever it is and i'm going to increase my productivity so every time you borrow to increase your productivity that's a good thing when government borrows and it should go without saying but let me say it explicitly it's not adding anything to production it's it's calling and borrowing but it's basically just consuming it so imagine uh you know you borrow all my dried coconuts and you just simply eat them and then just you know party on the beach and be lazy and don't do anything <laughs> Okay, well that's fine as, as long as it lasts, but mm-hmm. what do you do for an encore? Now you owe me all this coconut or fish or something, but you haven't got any. And so when you get to the end, when you get to the end of the accumulated capital, in this case, it would be a very limited amount. It would never happen because with two people it would be too obvious. Mm-hmm. You need to, you, know, you need to make it complicated enough and obfuscated enough, obscured enough that nobody can really figure out what's going on. You're consuming the accumulated capital. You know, we live in this incredible advanced civilization that basically depends on capital accumulated over many centuries. That's what we're consuming, mm-hmm. and we call it debt. You know, so we replace a real good with a piece of paper that's a promise to pay even more of, of goods, and yet we're not doing anything to produce those goods. When you get to the end, it's going to be a very bitter uh, day because um, there's no way to say, well, let's go back to the good times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Take a look at Venezuela. You know, from the Venezuelan's perspective, during the time of Hugo Chavez, things were good. And then he died right around the time. Essentially, they ran out of all the capital they could get their hands on mm-hmm. and so Nicholas uh, Maduro. Um, you know, things haven't been so good. And everyone's like, why can't we go back to the good times of Chavez? You can't because he, his times were good. If you call that good anyways, his times were good because he was consuming the capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, or eating the seed corn would be another analogy once you run out that 's when you know the, the real misery sets in, and that's where they're at and there's no way to you can't get the capital back. all you can do is work hard to you know reproduce it, but that takes many years or decades that's not a lot of fun there's you know tighten the belt and um, you know eat less and you know save for the future
1: mm-hmm. so how does gold? How does gold fit into this all as an asset, as an investment, as a form of money, if someone is interested in trying to avoid some of these problems? Right now, a lot of people obviously are talking about inflation because this is something that has been spiking in various countries, especially after two years of what I would consider nonsensical government policies, assuming they were actually trying to help anything. So right. how does gold, how does gold fit into this whole picture as a solution?
0: So so in a, in a working free market and gold standard, gold just doesn't make it possible to have that kind of profligate borrowing because mm-hmm. the saver is in control when he sees a government or anyone else for that matter borrowing without means or intention to repay, he simply won't lend. Um, Assuming you have a system, as we have, where the saver doesn't have that choice and they're going to borrow anyways, um, and gold is a way of essentially opting out of that system. You're saying, okay, well, the government's going to do what it's going to do, but I'm not going to be a lender to that. And perhaps more importantly, I'm not going to be the sucker who's holding this piece of paper that is intended to go down at a rate of 2% per year. That's the stated policy aim. And then, of course, it can go down a hell of a lot more than that. You know, imagine like you have a, a, a cinder block on a, on a stone shelf and you're pushing on and you're pushing on and you're pushing on it. it's not going anywhere. Well, there's a risk that you, know, you finally get it going and then you just shove it right over the edge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they don't have anywhere near as much control over uh, the consequences of their actions as they presume there's very much a Wizard of Oz. You know, there's a, there's a little guy behind the curtain. Who you know knows a little bit just enough to be dangerous, and then <laughs> the, the, the levers and the knobs. Um, so if if the if the currency is going down at some unpredictable and possibly jerky rate, then by holding gold, you're avoiding that. You mm-hmm. Saying okay, the, whoever holds that is going to take losses, but that won't be me because I'm going to hold gold instead. Yeah, um, that's that's essentially the argument. And of course, there's times when so I argue. You can't really understand gold by thinking of the dollar as money and gold as a volatile commodity that goes up and down. In the same way, I like to paint a visual picture. Suppose you're on the deck of a ship and the ship is sinking slowly. So it has, it has a leak in the, in the hall somewhere, but it's a small leak. It's not going down right away, but it is slowly sinking. And you happen to be in a storm where the waves are going up and down 20 meters. And you're staring at a lighthouse. And you're saying why is the lighthouse going up and down and mostly up the lighthouse isn't going anywhere you just have the wrong vantage point mm-hmm. so if you're sitting in the dollar looking at gold saying why is gold going up and down and mostly up it's the same exact uh you know thing so of course people you know people want to time the ups and downs of those waves and there mm-hmm. are waves. the fed creates those waves by introducing like energy into a system um but uh so you know when 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 gold is at a low point i.e the dollar's at a high point buy gold and it goes up and then you sell it and if you can time those perfectly you know they there's at least a, 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 an illusion that you can get rich that way mm-hmm. um, i'm not sure that too many traders get rich by by trading you know chart patterns like that but um uh, but if you if you if you say wait a minute let's take a more objective view gold is the lighthouse here um and we're looking at the dollar now we realize it's the dollar going down and up, mostly down. Um, it gives us a not a, a longer term view to say hold the gold and, and, and not the dollar, but also kind of a more clear, you know, understanding of what's actually happening. If, if gold is money, which is certainly my premise, then prices and values of other things are measured in money terms. And mm-hmm. the dollar isn't money; it's a very widely used credit. It's the most marketable credit. Money is the most marketable physical good or commodity Mm. um then then things become simpler clearer so I, i liken it to before copernicus everybody thought that the sun and the other planets revolved around the earth yes and it created this complexity you had to explain the retrograde motion right the planets are going around and then they go backwards for a bit and they go around some more and then backwards for a bit so uh, even describing that motion in equations became very complicated, mm-hmm. and then in terms of explaining the cause of this, nobody could come up with a cause. Of course, obviously there isn't a cause. Once you realize everything's going around the sun, mm-hmm. then things become a lot simpler, and now the cause is simply gravity. Um, you know, it's the same thing here that the theory becomes simpler, your conceptual under, your conceptual grasp of it, you know, broadens, and um, you know, it, it becomes much more obvious, okay, what, what should I do here versus, uh, you know, this dollar-centric or, or earth-centric, heliocentric uh, versus the heliocentric view. Mm-hmm.
1: What is it that makes gold implicitly or inherently valuable?
0: I wouldn't say it's inherently valuable, okay. but what I would say is that man has a, a a set of needs that comes from his nature, and animals don't. I mean, animals share a certain of our, na- our nature. Animals have to get oxygen, animals have to get water, animals have to get food, they have to get a warm, dry spot, they have to sleep. So, you know, sort of the same hierarchy, you know, as far as it goes. Um, but man is capable of reason, which means production beyond just hunting for a piece of meat. Um, and that also means planning for the future. So as you look at all the things that are available that are you know, either available in nature directly or can be extracted from nature with the application of production. Um, each type of good, so let's just take you know, the, the basic commodities, whether it's lumber, copper, wheat, uh, you know soy, oil, um, timber, whatever it is, each one of those things has a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like to play gotcha and say, gold you can't eat gold. That's right, and you can't eat oil, you can't eat copper, you can't eat cotton. There's a lot of things you can't eat. <laughs> So these these commodities are not for eating; they're for something else. Yes. Um, gold, you know, it's pretty. People like the word in jewelry. It's shiny. It's all these things, which is true. Um, the gold isn't for eating, and gold isn't for electrical conduction, except maybe as a very thin plating for a contact or something. Gold has has this other purpose, which is the monetary purpose. And I, I think the, there's there's something that I think is pretty well known, at least in gold circles, but not well understood. And that is virtually every bit of gold ever mined throughout human history, which is at least 5,000 years. A friend of, my, a friend of mine book, wrote a book called The Dawn of Gold in which he argues 13,000 years ago, the Neanderthals were picking up gold nuggets out of the stream beds in Europe okay. and valuing yeah. them. But it's at least 5,000 years. We don't know. It's obviously prehistory. Um, all that gold, and, 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 and through the present, we continue to mine gold. All hmm. that gold is still in somebody's hands. Which is extraordinary. It means there's no such thing as a glut in gold. Um, in any other commodity, if let's say you know, the farmers plant the wheat crop and um, all of a sudden the weather conditions just are perfect, the right amount of sun, the right amount of rain, the bugs are absent that year because it was a late frost or whatever it was, and um, the wheat harvest is 3% greater than expected, well, the price of wheat's going to crash. Um, that you know, so there's a glut in wheat, and the and the glut conditions remain until excess consumption comes into the wheat market, and reduced production you know uh, pulls supply out of the wheat market, and then you work the glut off, and hopefully by within a year or two you're back to to normal. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a glut in gold, um, which is an extraordinary thing. You can draw a lot of inferences from it, but the simplest one that, that I like to use is. Suppose you're, uh, you're walking through the desert here, and I live in a suburb of Phoenix. So, you know, 20 miles out of town, you're in the middle of this desert. And in the summer, it gets hot. Like it can be 115 to 120 degrees. So, for metric people, that's, you know, 45 to maybe 50 degrees centigrade mm-hmm. and bone dry, like you're putting your head in an oven. Um, if you're hiking around there in the afternoon, uh, it, it will turn deadly very quickly. You become very mm-hmm. dehydrated. If you don't get water, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So suppose you're wandering around, getting pretty close to death, but still stumbling around, and you see a guy selling you know, one liter jugs of water at the back of his pickup truck. What is the first liter of water worth? You'd empty your wallet for it. You'd empty your bank account for it. It's your life. Yes. Yes. What's the second liter worth? Well, that's how you're going to get back to civilization. You pay a lot for that, too, maybe mm-hmm. a bit less. What's the third? Well, that's a spare. What's the force worth? Well, it's like extra insurance maybe. Mm -hmm. By the fifth liter, arguably, there is no value. And so we call that diminishing marginal utility. That is the value of each unit added to the margin is rapidly dropping. And even in the case of water in the middle of of a lethal desert like this, the value gets to zero Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly. In the case of gold, after 5,000 years of production and mining, we haven't reached any kind of diminishing point the nth plus one ounce of gold is still worth just as much as the nth ounce. It's not a diminishing curve, Mm -hmm. which means that, that water, excuse me, not water, but gold is a suitable and objective measure of economic value, which means that, um, people can use it as a unit of account. There's so many virtues that come of this and, and all because gold has this unique property of being kind of rare, but it's actually not that rare. Mm -hmm. it's common enough that everybody can have some I mean if if you had a hypothetical element called unobtainium it might be really rare and really scarce it wouldn't work as money because nobody could get their hands on it Mm -hmm. if you have something as common as sand or water it wouldn't work as money because everybody can get as many hands full of it as they want so you kind of need to find that right thing in the middle gold doesn't tarnish gold is infinitely divisible but also recombinable every particle of gold is the same as every other, you know, so you go through all the properties, mm-hmm. um, something other, that's really interesting and more on the emotional side than the economic side. Have you ever held a, a piece of solid, like hundred percent pure 24 karat gold?
1: I actually have. Yeah.
0: It is astonishingly heavy. Mm-hmm. It's much, much, much heavier than it has any right to be for its mm-hmm. little size. like, you know, something, the size a, a brick of gold, the size of an old iPhone, the small iPhone mm-hmm. is a kilo like 2.25 pounds. yeah. And then the modern, you know, iPhone size, the big one, I guess would be, you know, five or six pounds. It's yeah. much heavier. So when you hold a piece of gold and then you hold any other metal, the other metal feels like cheap and, and you know, sort of worthless by comparison. I'm sure that to the ancients that must have been, um, you know, an important thing. Gold is about twice as dense as silver. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a piece of silver and a piece of gold of the same size, the gold is twice as heavy. Mm-hmm. Would that have impacted people emotionally to think they prefer to have your own? Yeah, you bet.
1: Absolutely. So I, I think it's impossible to have this conversation without talking about Bitcoin. I've done a lot of conversations around Bitcoin over the years. It's something that I myself am very interested in. It's something that people colloquial, colloquially often refer to as digital gold. Now, Firstly, before even getting into comparisons, what are your what are your general thoughts on Bitcoin? Is that something you're interested in? Or are you, you know, are you are you interested in both gold and Bitcoin? Or are you someone who's uh just in the gold camp? How how do you how do you see it?
0: So I'm very interested as as a monetary economist, as a as a, as a monetary scientist, somebody who would okay. study how these things actually work. I'm very interested in that sense. Um, and I'm also interested in that, you know, these things give, you know, give us the ability to conduct experiments using the real world as a lab and kind of see how they, how they work. Um, so my, my conclusion, I've written quite a lot of material on Bitcoin, is that it isn't money and it isn't sound. Um, and, you know, I, I love the term digital gold and of course all the imagery when anybody tries to graphically depict a Bitcoin. It looks like a piece of gold that's, you know, implanted either with, or embossed either with some sort of electronic circuitry, you know, from a circuit board, circa the 1970s, we can actually see the traces and everything on it, that are really big, or, um, uh, you know, the Bitcoin B, you know, with a, with a hash mark through it, mm-hmm. uh, embossed on on this gold coin. And it's, it's intended to connote gold, but of course it isn't, you know, the most important thing about gold is a physical thing that you can take home when you don't care to take a flyer on the system and bitcoin there is no taking home i mean you could print it on a uh, a qr code or you could you, you could put it on a, on a usb piece of hardware and take that home but that's just that's just the numbers that comprise the key essentially mm-hmm. um you know the bitcoin itself is essentially the 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 keys to unlock a particular record on a, on a public database which is called a blockchain um so if fundamental isn't like gold at all. Economically, I've just said gold has a, the quantity of gold that's in human hands is increasing without any particular limit. And it's been increasing, not today, not yesterday, not last year, it's been increasing for at least 5,000 years, mm-hmm. arguably many more thousands of years than that. Bitcoin, somehow they, they, they knew or thought they, thought they knew that the quantity had to be capped at 21 million total Mm-hmm. And I think that right there shows the difference between the two. The Bitcoiners are terrified of the idea that if the quantity would go up, then the value would go to zero. And in, in the case of gold, I don't think anybody who holds gold is afraid that a new gold mining startup is going to, you know, dilute or or destroy the value of gold.
1: Mm-hmm. But isn't this isn't it? Wouldn't the I mean the whole idea of Bitcoin being limited to a supply of twenty one million. Um, that's uh, that. That's an argument for it being literally more precious and more rare than gold is. Every single year, gold is being dug up out of the ground, as we've alluded to. Um, but on the flip side of that, we know that Bitcoin's supply is fixed and limited. So as adoption increases, the relative value of Bitcoin would increase.
0: Well, the price should go up, which is... Which is why they're all speculating on it mm-hmm. um but in terms of as, as a monetary good as to call it digital gold we know that the value of an ounce of gold has not fallen below the cost of one ounce worth of labor and oil and everything else to produce it after five thousand years mm-hmm. the value hasn't diminished mm-hmm. and the bitcoiners believe and i think rightfully so that if the bitcoin quantity were allowed to go up where the gold quantity does it wouldn't have that property at all. So Bitcoin is based on this idea of a fixed quantity and therefore uh, you know, it's kind of like a short squeeze of rising value based on more and more people trying to get the same quantity. Well, if the value is unstable, if the value is rising like that, then that renders it unusable for, certainly for debt agreements or long-term contracts of any kind, whether it be employment, long-term property rental, Nobody would dare to nominate any kind of long-term agreement in Bitcoin because the the obligor, you know, the the, the, the debtor would be bankrupted, uh, you know, by the rising price of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is an unstable value. That's the trade-off. That's the other side of the, mm-hmm. the flip side of the same coin. If I can make a, make a bad analogy using a coin here. The flip side of the fixed quantity coin is um Uh, Unstable or unhinged value, Mm -hmm. and that unstable value then renders it um, unusable for debt contracts, which means unsuitable for financing productive enterprise, um, and then therefore becomes a speculator's you know token or chip in the in the casino.
1: Okay, so
0: Uh, economic purpose. Okay,
1: so so you think the the gold comparison is is quite inaccurate for. For those reasons, in terms of an of an asset class, though, given those different properties, how do you see Bitcoin and gold sitting alongside each other? What do you think? What do you think is better for what purpose, shall we say, versus? The well, I think
0: that I mean I've, said, I've, I've i I I've, I've tweeted this many times in the first half of my sentence. I think pisses off the gold people until they read the <laughs> second half. And that is Bitcoin is obviously superior at skyrocketing and also mm-hmm. crashing. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if, if you're trying to time the waves of things going up and down, gold doesn't go up and down very much in dollar terms. Bitcoin mm-hmm. goes up and down enormously in comparison. Mm-hmm. If you're good at catching those waves and timing it, I mean, you could make a mint. Um, so if, if that's your goal, then Bitcoin is a much more attractive asset class, you know, for that. Um, as an economist, I, I have to take a step back and say what, and this is another one of those harms of, of what the Fed has done. You asked me earlier, and I said, these are three of them. You said that's a lot, but actually there's more. Yes. Um, what the Fed has done is crushed uh, and you know, return on investment ultimately. So uh, I, I make a distinction between investment and speculation. Okay. Um, and this, this is not a criticism of any speculator. The Fed has forced us all into this game. Uh, I blame the Fed who created the game and forced everybody into it, not the people that are forced to play the game. I want to be really clear on that. But uh, investment, you're financing production. Somebody says, I want to borrow this money. I'm going to build a factory and buy the tools, build a, construct the building to stamp out either more of an existing kind of widget or have a whole new kind of widget that's going to make his lives better in some way. And so by, by financing that, you're enabling that new production. That, that guy makes a lot of money. You're, the profit to the investor comes from part of the profits of that new enterprise that you're finance-enabled. In speculation, you're not financing anything. You're buying an asset, and then you know if your thesis is, is good, the asset goes up in price, and then you sell it. Your profits come from the savings or the capital or the wealth of the next speculator. So you fork over, let's say you got in early in Bitcoin and you bought it at a hundred dollars and let's say you timed the first, the first big wave up and you sold it at Mm $19,100, you got it almost exactly at the top back in, what was it? December, 2017. So you have a $19,000 profit. That profit is simply the savings of the next speculator. You forked over a hundred dollars to somebody who's getting out. He thought a hundred dollars was high and then you waited till the right moment and then someone else forked over $19,100. So you have your $100 capital back, presumably you don't spend that, $19,000 is your gain. So uh, you know, look at what happens to that $19,000. Part of it goes to the tax man, part of it goes to whatever brokerages and exchanges and other middlemen. Some of it may go to newsletter writers and conference organizers or whatever that you participated in to educate yourself along the way. And then you have whatever uh, twelve thousand, you know, dollar gain that you can spend, and you can go and buy consumer goods with. But those consumer goods are being bought with the savings of the previous, previous speculator, or the, sorry, the next speculator, the one who bought it off of you. You're spending his savings. So you know the Bible contains this, the story of the prodigal son, as, as a story with a moral in it, which is don't spend your life savings, or your family legacy. And i don't think very many people want to do that however an endless bull market gives people the means to spend someone else's savings so it makes us like a prodigal society um and it's all wonderful fun just as socialism under chavez was wonderful fun <laughs> as long as the speed corn lasts as long as the capital is there to consume and that's what uh, an endless bull market you know really fuels it's a process of conversion and when i mm-hmm. say that word conversion is a legal overtone, like an illicit taking of somebody's property it's a conversion of one person's wealth into another person's income to be spent and consumed
1: but what about over the long course of time because of course right now i mean i think one issue with comparing gold and bitcoin is time scale itself with one of these with one of these assets, we're talking about something that human beings have been interacting with and using and valuing for literally thousands of years. Um with another, we're talking 12, 13 years maximum, you know, we could even we could even say a decade. Um and of course, I think it's around 21 2140, I think, where when the last Bitcoin would be mine. So for a lot of people who have the vision of the Bitcoin standard, the idea is that over the course of the next century, these price fluctuations will stabilize as adoption increases, and as the number of new bitcoins going into the system decreases, and there will there will be a, bo- a point where it becomes far less volatile. Um, so right now, you're correct with the potential speculation at this point with these very wild swings that are happening month to month, year to year. But the idea is that in the long cor- over the long course of time, Bitcoin will become a much more stable asset. And then by that time period, um, also you'll you'll have a greater Lindy effect because it would have been around. Certainly not anywhere near as long as gold, but it would have been around for. I'm talking like a century from now, let's say. Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
0: I, I don't think Bitcoin has any mechanism to cause its value to be stable. Okay. Now, this, this gets into kind of a controversial area, but I think that if any, if if the price of something is set exclusively by the marginal speculator, the speculation is the only thing that really is 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 this, the price setting process is speculation and speculation alone. And I don't think it can ever be stable. I think it's like the ocean. There's always waves. Sometimes there's little ripple waves and sometimes there are giant tsunamis. Uh, but the ocean never never reaches an equilibrium because there's various inputs of energy in various forms, including sunlight, falling water, falling rock, all kinds of things happen. And the, the, the oceans are always being disturbed by inputs of energy. Um, and I think that uh, you know, Bitcoin is always going to be like that. I, I, you know, and, and then on top of it, I would argue that because it's quantity is fixed, small, even relatively small changes in demand necessarily. This is a feature, not a bug. This is by design, not by accident and not something that can be corrected. Small changes in demand necessarily mean large changes in price. That's a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. So how does it become stable? Well, you know, I've had a lot of arguments with a lot of people. Including the guy who wrote the book, The Bitcoin Standard. Mm-hmm. And basically the answer is, well, hand wavy, hand wavy. And besides waving the other hand, you're just a gold bug. You know. <laughs> you know argument and ad hominem because your company is a gold company, you know, you're invalid in in this argument. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you know, you want to make that argument. That's fine, but you haven't won the argument. You've just, you know, waved your hand. But yeah, I don't that- think there is a mechanism for stabilizing its value.
1: Okay. I mean, the reason, I'm, the reason I'm asking all these is, you know, a lot of it is I want to, I, I'm, I'm personally, I, I'm quite fascinated by the, the kind of binary split that people have with, a lot of people view it as Bitcoin or gold, right? I'm personally, that's not my personal perspective. Um, I'm extraordinarily interested in Bitcoin. Everyone knows I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin holder and I've been an advocate for it for several years. I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. Um, however, I don't think that Bitcoin and gold or even other currencies and, you know, this will annoy the Bitcoin maximalists. I, I don't think that Bitcoin and even all other, all other cryptocurrencies can, can not, uh, you know, that there's no others that can coexist with it and so on. And so I'm not in the sort of gold or Bitcoin camp. I'm like, okay, these are, two, these are two different assets which have some similarities in their properties. As we've discussed, they have some very different ones. I mean, for the most obvious thing in the world, one of them is a physical metal. Right. One of them is a digital asset class. Just that in itself is puts them in very different categories for me. Um, and I think people get interested in these things for different reasons. You know, some people are traditional investors. Some people are speculators. Some people are traders. Um, some people are just looking to store, store their wealth so that it doesn't lose value via the typical inflation of the dollar pound or euro and so on. Um, you know, some people are looking for a medium of exchange. I mean, day to day, it's not like we, some people like, Oh, well, you know, you can't you don't you can't spend bitcoin people don't most places don't accept bitcoin i'm like well you don't go into places with there are places where you where you could sell gold but you know we don't walk around with gold bars and gold coins at this point either so to me i'm kind of in in the middle of all this thing rather than having a a binary view of okay it has to be this one or it has to be that one i think both have value and both have a use case
0: so let me, um, let me respond with first an earnest statement and then uh, kind of a humorous uh, <laughs> joke. The earnest statement is, I mean, in, in a very broad sense, I think we agree. Let's have a free market. Let's have mm. the government stop taxing the gains on these things. And there's so many other ways the government has. I love the term nudge. Mm. This was Cass Sunstein, uh, you know, twisting everybody's arm to buy into uh, the Affordable Health Care Act. I love that. Well, we just have to nudge the people if they don't want to go along. Let's get rid of all this government nudging via the tax code via regulations and the, and the regulations are quite pervasive. So it's Mm -hmm. even down to financial advisors and banks, you know, reasonable and prudent investment decisions, all kinds of things that bias everybody in favor of the dollar and against both gold and Bitcoin. Let's have a free market and let's see you know, what, what wins in the free market, you know, electric cars versus gasoline cars, Yes. schools that teach wokeism versus schools that teach maybe the traditional three R's Mm. and and kind of, you know, leave it at that. Um, So in that sense, I I think we agree. then to your comment about Bitcoin maximalist um, every time somebody says, you know, Bitcoin is the only, uh, you know, legitimate, you know, cryptocurrency and all the others are, you know, bleep coins Um, on Twitter. I I post a, uh, there's an old Dilbert, Cartoon, where uh, Dilbert goes to Dogbert, and Dogbert is always the scheming, you know, let's be evil and take over the world kind of thing with some scheme that he's concocting. You know, Dogbert, what are you doing? And Dogbert looks up at him and says, "Um, "I'm working on uh, press releases for uh, you know bogus, um, you know, green energy solutions." Here, listen to this: by by 2030, scientists predict that you'll be able to power your home from the with the breeze from your refrigerator door. And uh Gilbert says, Oh great, now how am I gonna tell the legitimate green energy solutions from the scams? Mm-hmm. Dogbert says, Seriously, you think they're legitimate ones? <laughs> <laughs> so I like to post that when someone's saying, you know, comparing one one versus another, because to, to my you know, my Yeah.
1: Point, yeah. Well with me in, in general, with with everything, you know, number one, there I'm not an expert on every subject and I don't pretend to be. Um, one reason I love doing this podcast is to learn more from other people, and I also, you know, I think with so many things, it's important to always keep, you know, you can have have strong beliefs and, and positions on things that you've thought a lot about, but always keep that door keep that door ajar. I'm always, um, I, I always be, become skeptical when when someone wants to shut a door entirely and not even entertain other ideas or positions or viewpoints or perspectives in in anything, um, I think that's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of concerning. And actually, I think it's a bit rooted in fear, because I think if if you're totally uncomfortable with someone, even, you know, bringing up another idea or having a different perspective or anything, and the answer is just to attack and go with the ad hominem or, you know, name calling or whatever, it, it makes me think, well, that reeks of fear to me um you know i I get someone having a very strong perspective but it's like well you could be wrong right like i i could be i could be wrong right you know the the gold maximalists could be right the bitcoin maximalists could be right the people who think that uh this thing is you know that this altcoin is going to in the long term beat bitcoin you know they can. i i don't think they're correct right i think bitcoin is very different and unique from all of the other cryptocurrencies for a whole host of reasons Um, just like, I think gold is gold is unique. There's lots of metals out there, but gold has very specific properties that make it unique and valuable. And so to directly compare it to another metal, you know, is not good. But if someone was like, Hey, you know what, maybe we, uh, here's why silver is better than gold. Or here's why platinum is better than gold. I'll I'll listen to them. Um, I want to hear the perspective.
0: I think the, the question that Bitcoin has to answer. And I'm, I'm not going to frame this as a conclusion. I'll frame this as a question. Um, you know, the observation is in every other technology, whether it's engines to power things, whether it's you know the automobile and who was the first maker of the first automobile, to every other technology, computer networking. You know, if you remember computer networking in the 1970s and 1980s, you had you know Netbios and you had Banyan Fines and Novell Netware. You did have TCPIP. It was one of the computing standards. Um, in which technology is the first, first one developed, uh, you know, the best and remains, remains on top forever. Mm. Um, And in order for, you know, there's a trillion dollar bet riding on Bitcoin right now, Mm. in order for that bet to really be the right bet, then Bitcoin would have to be right, you know, not only, you know, best now, but best forever. And that means that there's a whole categories of innovations that can't occur. Because if they occur, they wouldn't occur within Bitcoin. They would occur as an innovation with some new coin that came out, and then um, if it wasn't backward compatible to, to Bitcoin. Um, you know, then the new coin would take share from Bitcoin, and Bitcoin would eventually be displaced by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, is that I mean, what's the argument that Bitcoin has to be it, the be all and end all? And uh, you know, that although Bitcoin represents technological innovation over let's say gold then there can't be any further technological innovations over bitcoin Mm. uh, or certain categories of them anyways so what what prevents that is essentially the question and Mm. i'd rather leave that as a question i don't have the answer to that um but i think that's something that somebody should be thinking about yeah well
1: i think it's i think it's fantastic food for thought and um I've had many Bitcoiners on this podcast. Um, it's been great having you on, Keith, because you actually are the first person I've had on to specifically talk about gold and to discuss some of the things we've talked about today. And this is not the, this is not the end of this uh, ongoing conversation. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, before we jump off, where can people find you online?
0: So on Twitter, I'm at RealKeithWiener. Um, my uh, company's website is monetary metals with an Mm S.com. And then I have lots of commentary and analysis of Bitcoin, gold, currencies, interest rates, you know, all the, all the usual stuff. And obviously lots of information on how investors can get started earning interest on their gold in gold and silver as well. Amazing. Uh, Monetary-metals.com.
1: Awesome. Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Really been enlightening and really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for sharing your insight.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: sick and of just for fame do for the fan not for the grand you it just for pain fame. i do not front i do not scam put some respect on my name yeah. sick like a bang clickin a bang y'all going remember the name hey. y'all gonna remember the name you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator